We've been going through the story of the Bible, and uh, I'm sure at some point in your life, you've probably had to do a little bit of wrestling. You've probably wrestled either with your parents or your siblings or as kids. You probably wrestled as friends. And when I say wrestled, like physically wrestled with someone, right? And we, we know that wrestling can be an exhausting aspect of, of our lives. Uh, and as we attempt to uh, try to take down our opponent, as we, as we try to, to get control, as we attempt to, to pin them to the ground, again, it's just it's physically exhausting, you know, and if you're like me as a parent, uh, the wrestling match with one of your children quickly turns into the Royal Rumble as everybody decides to get involved in that. And uh, I did just a quick little research in, in college wrestling. If you end up going into overtime, you could actually be wrestling for over 10 minutes. Uh, and think about that for a moment. 10 minutes of, of almost intense wrestling where they say that in a certain match, you could potentially burn hundreds of calories because you're utilizing all of these kind of explosive motions with your legs and your arms and the twisting, the turning, your neck muscles. It's like we've taken uh, CrossFit and plyometrics and, and yoga and just wrapped it all into one exercise. And so if you are looking for a way to lose some weight, grab your family, grab some friends, roll out the mat and start wrestling around, you should see uh, some change in no time, right? Well, when we look at the Bible, when we talk about wrestling, nothing better comes to mind than the wrestling match that we see with Jacob and God. And so that's where we're going to take a look at today. And, uh, and Jacob's story is really one perpetual wrestling match that has gone on in his life. Uh, and, and when we talk about Jacob's wrestling, though, it probably better equates to the WWE, the entertainment wrestling, the, the Hulk Hogan, the Andre Giants of the world. Uh, because in that type of wrestling, what you have are two different people. You have the face of wrestling, which is considered the good guy, or you have what's known as the heel in wrestling, which is the bad guy. But, there's, but they're working together in tandem, the heel and the face, to craft a story of entertainment purposes. And that's kind of what we're going to see as we go through Jacob's life, is you're going to have these two parts working together that is crafting a story that is ultimately God's story. So God creates the universe. He creates man. Man sins. He punishes them. Uh, he, he sends in the flood. He wipes off the face of the world. Uh, and then after they begin to repopulate, what does man do? Man decides to start sinning again. Right. And so so now we're in this process. And then out of this, he calls Abraham and he says, you're going to leave your homeland. You're going to leave your family. And through you, Abraham, through your lineage, we are going to going to have the blessings of the world. Right. I'm going to make a promise to you. And that promise is that I will be your God and, and the savior of the world will come and I will give you a home. And those that bless you will be blessed and those that curse you will be cursed. Well, the problem is, is Abraham's wife is barren. Uh, and finally, she gives birth to her son, Isaac. And we know that Abraham, we saw last week, that he has to go through this test. 
that he has to potentially sacrifice his son. And again, Abraham has waited his whole life for this son that was going to carry on the promise of God. And he prepares to sacrifice him. And God sovereignly steps in and says, don't do it, Abraham. I, I understand that you are willing to follow me. And so now we have Isaac. Now, we don't have a lot on Isaac's life. We only really have about maybe two, two and a half chapters where he's kind of the central character of this part of the story. Uh, but he, he, he finds his wife, Rebecca, and just like Abraham and Sarah, there's a famine in the land, uh, but this time they don't head down to Egypt, but they're kind of hanging out in, in the area of Philistine, uh, the Philistines. And, and he, he tries to pawn off his wife uh, as his sister, just like Abraham did. And God sovereignly steps in and says, I'm going to provide protection uh, and we're not going to have this. And so just like Isaac and Abraham, we realize that all people are sinners and, and messed up in this. And now that promise to Abraham is given to Isaac. And so now we're going to be here in Genesis chapter 25. So if you want to turn over there, Genesis chapter 25. I'm going to start reading in, in verses 19 and, and 23. It says, this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, and the Ramian. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, What is happening to me? So she went in to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So again, just like Sarah, for a long time, Rebecca is barren. She, she's not having any children. And again, in biblical times, for a woman, giving birth to a child was everything. And so to have a barren womb really was kind of viewed as God withholding his blessing or God punishing or providing a curse upon them. So this is a significant deal. But then God allows her to get pregnant and she's got two babies Right. She's got twins, essentially, that are that are jostling inside. And when we do that word study, it says mistreated, oppressed, shattered or smash. So that gives us some sort of intensity of what is happening within her belly. And it, it almost sounds like a little war is raging between the two of them, right? And, and Rebecca wants to know, God, why is this happening to me? Now, this is not uncommon for anybody that has ever struggled with anything in life. That's a very common question. Lord, why? I want to know what is happening to me, right? Why are these problems, these difficulties? And, and just to quickly kind of answer that question for just a, a moment here. Uh, and I don't want to ever belittle or, or make light of anyone's situation, but this is important to understand truth before we get into these situations. That what we need to remember is that when we go through hardship, okay, we were never promised exemption from hardship. Okay? There is nothing about us that deserves to be free of hardship or struggle or pain. Okay? I am a sinner just like all of you. 
But when we go through hardships and we cry out, why God, why God, why? We need to understand that God is there. And that God loves you and God cares for you and has not turned a blind eye. Now, we might not know why that is happening. And the reality is you and I may never know why that is happening. But that does not change the beauty of God's goodness or his divine sovereign story for who we are. So we have to keep those truths in mind whenever we go through hardship. But Rebecca gets an answer. And God says, look, you got two boys inside of you and they're wrestling and they're going to be two nations. And the older one is going to end up having to serve the younger one. Now, that is that's kind of a mind blowing statement for this time period, because, see, the older one was always entitled to the birthright. The, the older one would always get the extra portions of everything because in that time period, the mindset was is that when the father passed away, the oldest son was now the authority of the home and whoever was left. So if it was mom, sisters, if there was other brothers, he was now the responsible one. And because of that, he was also given an extra portion of the inheritance to be able to provide for all of those within his family. Now, this is unusual because for us, typically, when we get ready to pass away, we just typically divide up between our children and say, okay, everybody gets something equally. But that's not how it worked in biblical times. And so I have to imagine uh, that the older one is going to be a little upset when he kind of finds out what is going on. Because again, culturally, this was the expectation. So she's got two babies jostling inside of her. Now let's continue. Verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first one to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. And Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So they come out, the older one is Esau, he's red, he's hairy, he turns out to be a hunter. Uh, and then we have Jacob, who is the younger one, who is grabbing at the heel of his brother. And so the name Jacob there literally means heel grabber or translated to be uh, usurper or deceiver in that process. Uh, and he likes to stay home and he likes to do kind of the cooking. And so uh, dad, Isaac, is, is, is loving on Jacob, or I'm sorry, he's loving on Esau. Uh, and Rebecca is loving on Jacob. And so we have this piece where you're probably thinking what we have is kind of a man's man and a mama's boy on one side. Okay. All right. So let's continue. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he's also called Edom. And Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. 
He ate and drank, and then he got up. And so Esau despised his birthright. So right away, we get a picture here that Jacob is living up to his name as deceiver, right? His brother's probably been out hunting, and he comes in. He's like, I'm starving. Give me some food. And he's like, all right, you can have some food, but give me your birthright. And he's like, what, are you crazy? And he goes, listen, if you want to eat, this is the deal. And he says, fine. Now, I, let's be fair in this. Really, kind of both of these people are not thinking too wisely at the moment. I mean, why would Esau sell his birthright for, for some stew? That just seems foolish. And at the same token, here we have Jacob, who is utilizing his brother's situation for his own advantage, who is equally just as foolish in what he's doing. Um, but this is what happens. Okay, so we've got two brothers, they come out of the room, right? Esau is going to serve Jacob, and Jacob now has his birthright. So now I'm going to start to summarize a lot of the next chapters because we have to try to get to chapter 32. So I'm going to do a lot of summarizing so we can kind of keep this story. But this back part was really important to understand. So in chapter 27, uh, Esau grows up, he marries a Hittite woman, parents are not too happy about it, uh, and, and Isaac's getting old. He can't see very well, and he says, listen, uh, I want to bless my kids here. So he says, Esau, go out, hunt me some food, bring it in. I'm going to bless you, and then I'm going to die. Now, Rebecca, his wife, overhears this, and she says, quick, Jacob, quick, this is our chance. Go get some food, bring it to me. I'll cook it up, and then you go in and pretend to be your brother Esau, and you can take his blessing." And Jacob's like, Mom, this is a crazy plan. First off, he's all hairy and I've got smooth, silky baby skin. He's going to know. And Mom says, don't worry, we'll take care of that. We'll just put some goat skin on you. Dad won't know. But Mom, what if he finds out? He's going to curse me. Mom's like, don't worry about it. If he curses you, I will assume that curse. No, go get some food. Get in there. All right. And let's take that blessing from Esau. And so he goes in. And he says, Dad, here I am, again, pretending to be Esau. And Dad's like, wow, that was, that was really quick. And he's like, ah, yeah, God gave me some success in all of this. And so he's like, that's interesting, though. Jacob, or Esau, you don't sound like Esau. You sound like your brother, Jacob. Come here. And he starts to touch him, and he's like, well, you, you feel like him. And he smells him. Now you smell like, like Esau. And he eats the food, and he's like, well... I guess you got to be Esau. And so he eats. And then in chapter 27, verse 27 and 29, Isaac decides that he's going to bless who he thinks is Esau. And so he went in and he kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. And he said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord is blessed. May, may God give you of heaven's dew and of earth riches an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and people bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. And may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So he's like, listen, you're going to have an abundance. Everyone's going to serve you and it's going to go great. And Jacob is like, thanks, dad. And then he walks out. And then after he walks out, but who comes in but the real Esau? And he says, Dad, I'm here. I've got the food. I'm ready for my blessing. And he's like, what are you talking about? I already gave you the blessing. 
He's like, no, you didn't. Yeah, I did. You were in here earlier. And they realized that they've been tricked by the younger brother, Jacob. And Esau's crying out and he's saying, Dad, Dad, you've you got to bless me. You can't just let me go. And he's like, what else do I have to give? I, I just gave it all to your brother. And he says, please, Dad, please. And he says, fine, I will bless you. So in verse 38, Esau said to his father, he said, do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too. And then Esau wept aloud. And his father Isaac answered him, your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off from your neck. I mean, I don't really think that's much of a blessing. It kind of sounds like a curse, but he's like, listen, life isn't going to go well for you. You're going to live by the sword and you're going to have to serve your brother. At some point, you will overthrow that. And eventually we'll see that in 2 Kings chapter 8. But that's like eight, 900 years later that that finally comes to fruition. So how do we think Esau responds? He's furious and he's mad. And he's like, I'm going to kill my brother. He has just taken my birthright and my blessing from me. So Rebecca, the, the mom, is like, okay, Jacob, you got to get out of here. This is not going well. All right, go, go to Haran. I've got a brother over there, your uncle Laban. Go hang out with him until all of this blows over. And so before he goes, Isaac calls him in and he says, listen, I don't want you to take a, a wife from this area. Go Go, go, go to your, your mother, go see your uncle, take a wife over there. But may God bless you and may you be fruitful, just as he promised to my father Abraham and just as he's promised to me. And so now he goes on his journey. And now we're in chapter 28. And in chapter 28, this is where Jacob has a dream. And this is the kind of the, the famous stairway to heaven or, or the ladder to heaven. And as he's dreaming, he, he sees these angels coming up and down. And at the top of that, that stairway is God standing there. And God reiterates the promise now to Jacob. And he says, Jacob, I promise through your descendants will come the lineage of a savior. Your descendants will be numerous. The savior will come and, and I will protect you and I will bless you and, and I will give you a home. All of this will be yours just as it was to Abraham and to Isaac and now it is to you, Jacob. And in verse 15, he says to him, God says, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob says, I get it, God. And he responds to worship in verse 20 of chapter 28. Then God, Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and I will watch over me on this journey. And I am taking, on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of that you give, I will give you a tenth. And so he, he worships God. Now, we have to stop for a moment, right? Let's just call out the obvious. This does not seem very fair for the moment, right? Jacob is a swindler. He just conned his brother. He conned his father. He worked in cahoots with his mom, stole the birthright, stole the blessing. And what you're telling me is that God is making a promise to this guy that he's going to be blessed. 
Yes, that's exactly what's happening. I'm glad you're following along. Okay, so chapter 29. Jacob makes it over to the land of his, his uncle. He goes to Laban, and he finds that Laban's got two daughters. And in verse 16, chapter 29, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. And Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob wants to marry Rachel. The problem is, culturally, the older daughter was supposed to get married first. And he says, all right, well, here's the deal. You work seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. Perfect. So he works seven years for his uncle. Seven years comes, and he goes, I'm now ready. Can I have my wife, Rachel? And so as they're prepared to kind of consummate the marriage, Laban pulls a quick one on, on Jacob, and he sends in Leah. And then Jacob realizes that he's been deceived, and he's pretty upset. And he's like, wait a minute here. The deal was seven years for Rachel, not seven years for Leah. And he said, listen, you know, that, you know how this works. The older one has to get married first. So I'll tell you what. If you actually really want Rachel, you work for me another seven years, and then I'll let you have Rachel. And so that's what Jacob does. So he spends seven years working to get Leah, and then seven years to get Rachel. And we're probably all like, good, that scoundrel got what he deserved. So just as he deceived, he's now been deceived himself. Well, family dynamics are going to get super complicated here now. Because what we're going to see here in verse 31, it says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her, her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God decides that he's going to let Leah have some kids. But Rachel's womb is not going to have anyone. And Leah is hoping that if she can provide children to Jacob, that Jacob will actually love her. Well, that's not how it goes, but Leah ends up having four boys. And now we come to chapter 30. And Rachel is jealous, and she's upset, because she doesn't have any kids. And, and she, she turns to Jacob, and he's like, how come you're not giving me any kids? And they get in this argument, and he's like, I'm not God. I can't make this happen. And she says, fine, fine. Take my servant. Take my servant, Bilhah, and, and you have kids with her. And so Jacob does, and he has kids, and they have two boys. And Rachel feels good, like, now I've got my own children. And at this point, Leah is now barren, and she's jealous and she says to Jacob, Jacob, you take my maidservant, Zilpah, and you have kids with her. And so now Jacob has, has two, two boys with her. And so we're up to eight kids. Leah's got six, and, uh, or I'm sorry, Leah's got four, Bilhah's got two, Zilpah's got two. And at this point, Rachel and Leah get into an argument. And Rachel shows up to Leah and she says, I want some of those mandrakes. And she's like, oh, you already had my husband, and now you want these mandrakes as well? And if you don't know, mandrakes is kind of like a love plant. It's an aphrodisiac. It, uh, it creates a fragrance. Uh, they thought of it as kind of a, a love fertility drug. And so essentially, Rachel is saying, I want to have my own kids. And so they work out a deal. You can have these mandrakes, but Jacob, he gets to, he gets to spend the night with Leah. And so Leah ends up having two more boys and a daughter. 
God eventually remembers Rachel, and she ends up having two children, one being Joseph, who we'll hear about next week, and then another one. So all in all, Jacob has 13 kids. He's got 12 boys and a daughter. And I want us to be very clear. Just because this is in the Bible does not make it appropriate. Okay? This was not God's desire for marriage here. Okay? But I'm sure this complicated family dynamic has certainly created some very awkward uh, holidays uh, during this family time. But we're not done with Jacob's life. Okay? We're not done with Jacob. So at this point, he's out tending the flock with his uncle, and he says to his uncle Laban, he says, I got a, hey, I got a proposition here. What if I keep all of kind of the speckled, the spotted colored animals, and, and you kind of just keep all of the, the clean ones, the pure ones, you know, the ones that don't have any of that? And Laban's like, all right, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And so Jacob then connives this way where that when the animals come into water, he puts all of the strong, healthy females in front of the speckled and spotted ones, and all of the weak females he puts now in front of Laban's animals. And so as the animals produce, Jacob is getting all of the strong ones, and Laban's got all of the weak ones. Now, I'll let you decide whether that's clever businessman or just a shady business deal going on. Um, but eventually, Laban hears kind of what happened, and his attitude begins to change towards Jacob. And he's like, all right, I don't really like what's going on. And at this point, God calls to Jacob and says, listen, it's time to come back home. Get your stuff, and you're coming home. So Jacob, with quick hurries, he gets wife one, he gets wife two, he gets maidservant one, he gets maidservant two, he gets all of his kids, all of his flocks of servants. He says, come on, guys, we got to get out of here. We got to get back home. And so as they start going uh, back home, uh, it, it, it takes a little bit uh, for Laban to realize what has happened. But when he does, he's like, wait, where's, where's my daughters? Where's my grandkids? And who stole my idol? See, before they left, Rachel stole one of her father's idols. And I think one of the reasons why she did this is because some of these idols were basically a claim to inheritance. Because that's her concern in chapter 31, 14, that her and Leah will no longer have any inheritance. That if, if we leave, somebody else might take all of our property. So by holding on to this idol, it's kind of like my safety token here that if I ever come back, I can go, no, 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 this land belongs to mine. So Laban goes chasing after him and he catches up with him and he's like, what have you done? You're just running out in the middle of the night. You're not even giving me a chance to say goodbye to my daughters and my grandkids. And who stole my idol? So Laban is really upset about this. But Jacob and Laban kind of work it out and they mend the fences. And he says, all right, fine, be on your way. And so Jacob continues. And now as Jacob continues, he's like, wait a minute. I left because my brother Esau wants to kill me. Oh, no. What if he's still mad at me? So he sends some people ahead to kind of find out what's going on and to see how it is. And they come back and they're like, guess what? Esau's on his way with 400 men. And you have to imagine that Jacob is not feeling pretty good about this. So now we turn over to chapter 32, verse 7 and 8. 
In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other group that is left may escape. And let me hop over to verse 19. He also instructed the second and the third and the others who followed the herd, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant is Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts. I am sending him on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone. So Jacob's thinking, all right, if I just like keep sending wave and wave and wave of people and providing gifts and saying like, hey, Esau, like Jacob's coming. I hope everything's okay. That maybe, maybe he'll be all right. That by the time I get there, he'll be pacified. And if not... Well, some people may be spared that if he begins killing the first waves of people, then everyone else afterwards will be okay. And don't you just love the fact that he sends everyone else ahead of him? Like, what a real hero to his family, right? And so now the crucial moment of Jacob's life. This is what this whole part of his life has been building towards here. Chapter 32, verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? And then he blessed them. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face. And yet my life was spared. So Jacob's just there by himself. And this guy shows up. And they're just wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. It says they wrestled till daybreak. I mean, you have to imagine Jacob is probably exhausted at this point. And the man can't overcome Jacob until he touches his hip socket. And he basically puts it out of place. And the man's trying to leave. And and Jacob's like, no, you, you can't leave yet. You have to bless me. And he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Because he's basically saying, you have wrestled with God and you have overcome. I think what a story of Jacob's life. There's so much intrigue in here. There's so much happening. And again, we're like, wait, Jacob gets to wrestle with God and gets the blessing? Let me go back and just read an earlier part of chapter 32. Before Jacob ends up wrestling with God and as Esau is approaching, here's what Jacob prays in chapter 32, verse verse 9. 
Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all of the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid and he will attack me, and also the mothers with children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Before he goes over, he prays this. He said, God, you're calling me back. God, you made a promise that I would prosper. And so, God, I I recognize that I am unworthy of everything that I've been given. And so what I ask at this moment, God, is that you would spare my life for my brother Esau. And don't forget the promise that you've made. You promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to me the promise of the line of the Savior. See, we need to keep that in mind when we think about how Jacob wrestles with God. Because his entire life has been one constant problem. I mean, he literally wrestles with his brother in the womb. He has tensions with his parents as they're playing favorites. He deceives his father. He deceives his brother. He steals a birthright. He steals a blessing. He has issues with his uncle, and he's got two wives and two maidservants that all produce him children. Every relationship that Jacob is part of is filled with hostility. It's filled with tension that exists. His life is a never-ending struggle in that capacity. But God grants him a promise. And God gives him this divine moment to wrestle. You know, when we look at the scriptures, we so often see the flawed individuals that God uses. And it baffles us, doesn't it? Why, God? Why use that person to accomplish your purpose? Why is it that everything about Jacob's life, then he gets a blessing. Well, Jacob's story is just like our story, isn't it? See, none of us are deserving of the blessings or promises of God. Every one of us is deceitful. We're manipulators. And we're all selfish. And you may not want to admit it. But you are. And so am I. You know, in the world of entertainment wrestling, each and every one of us is the heel of the story. We're the bad guy. And just like Jacob, we live in a world of broken relationships and hostilities and tensions. And we struggle in this world. And it's not until that we encounter God and let God dislocate our pride will we ever find the blessings that God has promised to us? See, when we wrestle with God, something special happens. God humbles us. 
And then when God humbles us, God blesses us. You know, to, to finish just Jacob's story here real quick, it says that as Esau and his men approach, he has his immediate wives and kids divided. But what does he do? He walks ahead of them. And as he's approaching Esau, he's bowing down seven times in humble submission to Esau. And in chapter 33, verse 4, it says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And Jacob and Esau return home and they worship the Lord. Remember that prayer that he had when he was in fear? God, would you spare me? God, would you save me? He acknowledged his unworthiness and sought salvation and he wrestled with God for it. I like how one author captures Jacob's life this way. He said, Jacob wasn't wrestling to keep God or push God away. Instead, he was wrestling to keep God with him. Jacob was not wrestling with God because God was his enemy. He was wrestling with God because God was his prize. And so now Jacob lives with a limp. But that limp is a reminder to Jacob that he is safely and dependent on God's sovereign plan for his life. And the reality is that's where we all need to be, right? And so if we wrestle with God just as Jacob did, see, here's what happens. He changes our identity. We go from the heel of wrestling to the face of it. We go from the bad guy in the story to becoming the victor. And here, here's the beauty of all of this, guys. We gain victory not because we won. I mean, Jacob wrestled with God. You think God could really lose to a man? We gain victory because God chose to lose. And when I say God chose to lose, what I mean by that is that there is nothing inherently good about Jacob. There is nothing inherently good about me. I am not kind. I am not, it's not my charitable giving. It's not my, my, my spotless church attendance. It's none of that that makes me deserving. I won because as it speaks about in John chapter 10, when God describes himself as the shepherd and we are his sheep, he says that he lays down his life for his sheep. And in verse 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I gain victory because Christ chose to give up his life for me. He chose to give up his life and to be nailed to the cross and to shed his blood so that I may have victory in Christ and overcome the sin of this world through what he has done. And that is the story of Jacob. And so to finish with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we wrestle with God, he changes who we are, and we go from sinner to saint, and he takes away all of my fears. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that uh, you change us. 
Lord, we don't deserve to be changed, but you do. You do out of your goodness and goodness alone. And just as Jacob was a manipulator, a con artist, a liar, a deceit, Lord, you took a, a, a broken man, a sinful man, and you changed his life. And Lord, you do the same thing for each and every one of us. And Lord, I thank you for this story. I thank you that we are part of the wider story, Lord, that we will continue to see that through Abraham, through Isaac, and now through Jacob will come our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that story is not done. But Lord, our limp allows us to be safely in your arms. And we thank you for that. Amen.